We're talking about faith to receive, and uh, you can write as a subtitle today, no ifs, no baby, no maybes, or buts. No ifs, maybes, or buts. And we're talking about faith to receive, and we're in Mark 11. We've talked about how it's not only God's will, it's not just his will that we um, are born again by faith, but that we live by faith, uh, that we operate by faith in our daily lives. I think it's four times in the Bible we find the, the uh, scripture, the just shall live by faith. We can only receive what God has given us. So we're not trying to change God. We're not trying to force something out of God's hand that is not his will for us to have. We're, we're talking about receiving what God has already given us. And in 2 Peter 1.3, we won't turn there, but it says all things that pertain to life and godliness, God has already given us through the word. All things that pertain to life and godliness has already been given to us by God through the word. So everything you need in this life, everything you want in this life, how are you going to get it? By faith. Believe and we receive it. Amen? Believe and we receive it. So while you're here, you require good health. You require material and financial provision. You require wisdom and direction for your life. You require protection. And all of these things we find uh, either promised to us in the Word or God's already made it available to us uh, through redemption. So we're, we're going to require all of these things in order to please God and to fulfill what he's put us here on the earth to do. Many Christians don't know what God has already given them, even though it belongs to them. Uh, but because they don't, they don't know it, then they're not able to enjoy it. And through the centuries, the problem has been on our part. Really, it's, it's not on God's part that he's been reluctant to give it or, or it's passed away or anything like that. It's been, the problem's been on our side, mainly through wrong teaching, that, that, that we, we have not known what belongs to us, so therefore we've been unable to receive what God has already provided for us. You know, somebody will start a doctrine and say, well, it's not God's will for you to have that, or this has passed away, or, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're just leaving it up to God. He'll do what's best for you. You know, people start these doctrines. But in Ephesians 5.17, it says, Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So when we're born again, we all start out not knowing anything. We all start out not knowing the will of God. But that's why he's given us his word. And that's why he's given us the Holy Spirit to live on the inside of us. 
and also, we have a responsibility to find out what the will of God is. That's, that's something else many Christians don't realize. You know, they, they have a responsibility to find out what the will of God is. God said to the first generation of Israelites that he brought out of slavery, he said, I have given you the land, go up and possess it. He didn't say, I'm going to give you the land. He says, I have given you the land, go up and possess it. But there were uh, enemies there, there were giants, there were walled cities, uh, there were enemies there uh, to resist them and to hinder them and, and to prevent them from possessing what God had given them. So it wasn't automatic. Even though God had given it to them, they still had to go in and possess it in the midst of these enemies and all the opposition that was standing in their way. It was still God's will for them to go in and possess it. Uh, we've talked about 1 Timothy 6.12, which says, Fight the good fight of faith. Uh, we have to fight these spiritual forces that are resisting us from receiving and possessing what already belongs to us. We have to fight our flesh. You know, this, this uh, telling us we're wasting our time and it's not happening and we have to cast down these negative thoughts and imaginations from the, and lies from the enemy uh, in our mind that, that it's not working uh, and so forth. Th this is the fight, is, is to resist our flesh and to resist the devil and his lies. Uh, that, that's where the fight is. But when we refuse to quit, God always causes us to triumph. Amen. So we're here in Mark 11. Uh, the little background here to Jesus' teaching on faith in um, Mark 11. 22 to 24. The, the background here is that, you know, they, they were walking from Bethany back to uh, Jerusalem. Jesus uh, had, uh, I think it was a day before, he had seen this fig tree with leaves on it. And uh, when, when, you know, the, the Bible encyclopedia tells us that when you would see one of these trees with leaves, the leaves indicated that you would expect to find fruit there. If you saw leaves, you would expect to find fruit. But when Jesus went over to the tree because he was hungry, he pulled back the leaves and there was no fruit when there should have been, you know. So in a way, this was kind of like an April Fool's Day joke on Jesus, you know. Like April Fool's, you know. You, you thought you were going to get something to eat, you were hungry, and I made it look like I had figs, but I tricked you. You're not getting any figs. You know, you're, you're just going to stay hungry, you know. So it was kind of like a practice tree was deceiving Jesus and playing a practical joke on him, and, and it was saying to him, you know, I fooled you. You're not going to get any fruit off me, and Jesus answered it, and said, no man is going to eat fruit of you again hereafter forever. I mean, he had the final word. And nothing outwardly happened instantly to that tree. Nothing on the outside instantly happened. But 
underneath the ground where you could not see, something instantly began to happen to the roots of that tree. That's where the power in Jesus' words began to work, in the unseen realm. And that's why when we release our faith and we speak to these things, uh, it, these, the, the faith is released into the unseen realm. That's where things begin to change first. And then the last place you begin to see the change manifested is in the outward circumstances. That's why the next day when they came back from, uh, from Bethany, the disciples said, look, Master, the fig tree that you cursed is dried up. So there was a, uh, a period of time here, you know, where eventually it, it was obvious from the outside that this tree had dried up and withered. And they, they noticed it. And they pointed it out to Jesus. Look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered up. Now, if um, when they remarked to Jesus about this fig tree, they, they noticed now that it's, it's withered up outwardly. If um, you know, if Jesus did this because of his divine power and his ability as the Son of God, there would have been no reason for him to stop here and teach them and us how to do this. If Jesus had cursed this fig tree by his own divine ability and divine power as the Son of God, when they said, look, Master, the fig tree you cursed is withered up, he would have said, of course, I'm Jesus. I'm the Son of God. I can do these things. But don't you try to do it because you don't have the divine power that I have. Is that what Jesus stopped and taught them? No. No, that's not what he stopped and taught them. So he expected them and us to be able to do the same things. That's why he stopped and he taught this object lesson on how to do it. So when Jesus took this opportunity here to teach them this lesson on faith, he did not talk about what he could do. He did not talk to them about what he could do. He talked to them about what whosoever can do. Do you see the point? He talked to them about what they could do. He talk, he's talking to us about what we can do. Verse 23, he says, Whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be removed, be cast into the sea, whosoever does not doubt in his heart, but whosoever believes that what he says comes to pass, whosoever shall have whatsoever he says. Everybody say, I'm a whosoever. I'm a whosoever. Amen. Amen. That's who he's talking to. And notice in verse 24, he says, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. He, he keeps talking about you. He never mentions himself. He never mentions his divine ability. He, he's, he's talking to us. He's talking to you. 
Now, in Matthew's account of this same story, Jesus said, uh, if you had faith and doubt not in your heart, you would not only do what's done to this fig tree, but see that mountain over there? You, you could also speak to that mountain and command it to be removed, and it shall obey you. That's what he said in, Ma in Matthew's account of this story. So he said, you shall not only do what's done to this fig tree, but if you say to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, it shall be done. Jesus, again, did not mention anything about his own divine ability causing this to happen. He didn't say that only he could do it. So Jesus is telling them and us that this is what we can do. Now, uh, we're still here in Mark 11. We are to follow Jesus' example of living by faith and walking by faith. That's why he's given us this object lesson. Now, Jesus, uh, there's something you notice all throughout his ministry. He was not indecisive. He was not uh, questioning the will of God. He was not ambiguous. He was bold and forthright and confident in what he said. Verse 24. Let me get back over there. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe. Believe what? That you believe, have yeah, believe that you receive them. Yeah, that's right. And ye shall have them. Now, millions pray for what they desire, but they don't believe they receive it. What do they believe? Well, I just believe if it's God's will in his own good timing and in his own good way, if he sees fit, well, he'll do it, you know? That's not what Jesus said we're to believe when we pray for what we desire. Well, you know, I, I believe if it's God's will, then, you know, we... This could happen, but, but if it's not, then we're, we're content with that also. This is a widely held man-made doctrine, but it is not believing that you receive. And all of the Christians that believe what Jesus said here like we do, we are in the minority. We are in the minority. Christians all over this country, all over the world are going to church and the preacher's not telling them to believe they receive it. He's not telling them to believe when they pray that you take it now. They don't teach, you know, when it comes to teaching the new birth, they don't tell people to wait on God. But then when it comes to everything else that pertains to life and godliness, everything we need and require here on earth, good health, material financial provision, uh, protection, wisdom and direction, when it comes to those things, they change the rule and say, well, it's, it's up to God. He knows what's best for you. You, you, just, you just leave it up to God. And they're chopping and changing. Can you say that is not consistent with the Word of God? So, 
We're, we're, let's go back here to verse 23. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. Now, that is the phrase we want to uh, expound on today. We want to go into this further. What does it mean to not doubt in your heart? Now, I looked up uh, the word doubt in the, the Greek lexicon, and it means to differ, to waver, to separate thoroughly, to call in question, and to stagger. That's what it means in the Greek. What was the first one? To differ, like to make a difference, or to, to you know, separate, to divide, to question, call into question. Then I looked up the word doubt in the dictionary, and it means to waver or fluctuate, to hesitate to believe, uncertainty or lack of conviction, to question, now this is, this is, this is important here, to question the truth of something, to disbelieve a person or their word, to question the truth of something and to disbelieve a person or their word. So then I looked up the, the words, no doubt. If that's what doubt means, what does no doubt mean? No doubt means the firm belief that something is true, even if evidence is not given or available. Now folks, that is faith. Believing God, believing what God says is true even when there is no evidence given or available. You're in faith when you're doing that. You are not doubting in your heart. Now, this word uh, doubt in Mark eleven twenty three is also the same Greek word found in Romans four twenty, where it says, Abraham staggered not at the promises of God. It's the very same Greek word, stagger. It's translated stagger in Romans 4.20. The very same Greek word translated doubt in Mark 11.23. So I looked up the word stagger. It means to vacillate, to move to one side and the other in standing or walking. <laughs> yeah. To cease to stand firm. To begin to give way. To hesitate. To begin to doubt and waver in purpose. To begin to doubt and waver in purpose. To become less confident or determined. That's what stagger means. So Jesus said, stand up, speak to the problem, and don't doubt in your heart. Amen? Don't stagger at what you just spoke to the mountain. Don't stagger and waver and hesitate 
at what you just said. You commanded it to be removed, be cast into the sea, don't waver, don't question it, you know, don't doubt, don't doubt, amen, be confident. Don't question and waver at what God has said he's already given you. As long as you're still questioning and wondering and wavering over whether it's God's will for you to have this, then you can't pray in faith and receive from God. The prayer of faith requires that you already know what the will of God is about this that you're asking for. The prayer of faith requires that you already know the will of God about this before you even pray. The word says Jesus took our sicknesses, weaknesses, and pain for us so that we would not have to have it. That's the will of God. So it cannot also be the will of God that you die with this thing over here at a young age. Both of those cannot be the will of God at the same time. It cannot be God's will for you to be blessed and have a surplus and have you know, all your needs and wants met, be able to give to God the way you want to give, be able to help other people, and, and you don't even miss what you've given. You know, you've got this surplus and you're just in this cycle of blessing and surplus. That cannot be God's will on the, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it be the will of God that you struggle financially and lose everything you have. Both of those cannot be the will of God. So we have to choose one, and we have to stick with it and don't change. We, we can't vacillate, okay? We can't go back and forth, believe in one thing one day, believe in something else. You know, maybe God's trying to teach me a lesson. No, that can't be the will of God. And, and on the one hand, and, and, and on the other hand, it be God's will that you be healed and you be blessed and you have abundance. Only one can be the will of God. So if you put together what Jesus said in Matthew 21 and Mark 4, uh, sorry, Mark 11, he said, if you have faith and don't doubt, you can not only do what's done to this fig tree, but you can say to this mountain, be removed, be cast into the sea, don't doubt in your heart, don't vacillate, don't move, don't go back and forth, but believe what you say comes to pass, you will have whatever you say. Can you see this all beginning to come together? All, all coming together. Satan is limited uh, to this natural realm. He is not like God. He doesn't have divine power like God has. He, he's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He can't be all places at one time like God. He, he just does not have the God kind of power. Now, he'll make you think he does, but he doesn't. He, he's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful like God. He's limited to, to this natural physical realm. He has a right to be here until this lease is up on the earth. And after that, he's going to be out of here. But until then, he's got a right to be here, and we've got to uh, overcome him because he's here to resist us and to hinder us from receiving what God wants us to have. So 
you know, you speak to the pain, you speak to the bills, you speak to the strife in your family, you speak to the money, whatever, whatever it is uh, that, that the enemy has put in your way. You're speaking the word. Jesus took my sicknesses and weaknesses and pain, you know. He will, he will uh, supply all my need. I'm the head and not the tail. You know, great is the peace of my children. And, and uh, you know, they are told of the Lord. You're, you're declaring the word of God. You're declaring the favor of God goes before you. And Satan cannot stop this from coming to pass. He cannot stop it. But what he can do is to try to get you to stop it. <laughs> and he... And he that's why he starts fiddling around with your circumstances. And so you're believing God in the morning, you know, and you're declaring, and you're in faith, you know, and then about 11 o'clock, you get a letter in the mail, and you open it up, and it's not what you wanted to hear, you know. <laughs> it's not good news, you know. He's trying to distract you, get you your attention over here on this letter on this bad news over on to him and he's saying look you know look at me forget forget that word forget what jesus said look go back and read that letter again you 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 read what the doctor said nobody ever gets healed of this you know that's what he he wants your attention over on him you know you know you read that letter from the bank you heard what they said, you know, yeah, but, but, but God said he would supply all my need. No, 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 don't believe that. Come over here, read this letter. Read that letter again, you know, this is official. This is a legal letter. This, you know, look, read this again. That's what all this is about. And you're over here, yeah, but God's, God said, you know, by his stripes I'm healed. No, 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 no. Look at me. Listen to me. Read that letter again. This man is a doctor. He has spent years studying the human body. He knows. He, you know, yeah, yeah. We got the great physician. But you can see the devil trying to get you to move back and forth in faith, out of faith, vacillating. He's trying to get your attention off the word of God to stop your confession of faith because he, he knows it's going to come to pass. He, he knows God's word is true. Now, if it was not true, let's say, uh, let's say your faith really wasn't working. He, first of all, he has no divine insight to know whether it's working or not. He doesn't have that accountability to know if your faith is working or not. He's just telling you that. So, but if it was true, let's say if it was true that your faith is not working, why is he so interested in it? Why is he even concerned about it? I mean, if you're failing and going down the tube, why should it matter to him? You know? So, so this is a sure sign and indication, you know, that he is panicking. He is panicking. You can hear the desperation in his voice, you know. Look, you got to read this. You got to do something, you know. He he's panicking because you have stepped out of the boat. You have stepped out onto the word of God and you are walking on the water and he cannot stand it. He cannot stand it and he's going to do everything he can to try to stop it. 
so we're not we're we're learning how he operates no doubt no wavering no vacillating hallelujah because if he can get you to look at these at the negative circumstances long enough he can he can stop your confession of faith he can get you to looking at the, the negative circumstances long enough eventually you will agree with him that's what he's counting on if he breaks your your focus on the word and and believe in god believing that what you say comes to pass not doubting in your heart um if he can break that and get you into agreement with him now you're into doubt you're not in faith anymore and that's what he's after you know a good example is when uh you know peter stepped out of the boat and and walked on the water what what did he step out on what was holding him up faith yeah the, when jesus said come come the word of god and that's what he stepped out on and he was doing great until yeah he started looking around oh you know boy that wind is high and boy look at those waves he was doing fine till he started looking at the natural things and that's when he began to sink he began to wait he began to doubt now let's turn to James 1 James 1. <coughs> Verse 5. James 1, 5. If any of you lack wisdom, who will this work for? Any. Any of you. Amen. This will work for any of you. Wisdom uh, includes understanding and direction for the future. Wisdom includes understanding and direction for the future. The wisdom of God encompasses the whole plan of God. So when we don't know what to do, we don't know which direction to take, he tells us, what to do it says let him ask of God and if it's his will and his own good time and his way is that what it says no no let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not and it shall be given him It doesn't say if it's God's will. It doesn't say in God's own good way in his own time. But that's what millions of people believe. Millions of people believe that. I'm going to read this scripture from the New Century Version. It says, But if any of you needs wisdom, you should ask God for it. He is generous to everyone and will give you wisdom without criticizing you. I like that. He will give you wisdom without criticizing you. The Common English Bible says, 
But anyone who needs wisdom should ask God, whose very nature is to give to everyone without a second thought, without keeping score. Wisdom will certainly be given to those who ask. Now that doesn't say anything about the will of God and maybe he will and maybe he won't, does it? No, no ifs, no maybes, no buts. When we speak boldly what God will do according to his word, people accuse us of being presumptuous. They say, well, it may not be God's will, or you can't, you can't say what God will do. How do you know what God will do? Well, if you read the word and believe it, you know what he'll do. The reason they don't know what he will do is because they don't know what the word says. People, you, you know, I've heard people say this. Well, you just put too much emphasis on the word of God. <laughs> now, how can you put too much emphasis on the word? I was listen, uh, listening to a radio broadcast uh, the other day in, in America, and the, these people, they do lots of surveys and things, and they were saying about uh, the people who self-identify themselves as Christians, they call themselves Christians in America, about 75 to 80 percent. But if you begin to give them specific uh, questions and specific statements about the word and faith and so forth, the answers they give drops the percentage down to about 25 percent are actually Christians. They actually believe the teachings of the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. Uh, only about one in nine Christians in America right now, um, one in nine believes that there's absolute truth, that the Word of God is absolute truth, that it is inspired by God, and it is infallible. Now, I don't think you can say we're putting too much emphasis on the word. Mm -mm. Yeah, and I don't think the rest of the Western world is very far behind. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. It's not very far behind. So to say that we're putting too much emphasis on the word, you know, what does that tell you about these, these people in this survey? That tells me when they go to church on Sunday, they are hearing something other than the word of God. They are hearing something other than the Word of God. If, if only one out of nine believes that, the, that there's absolute right and wrong, that the, the Bible's inspired Word of God and it never changes, they are hearing something else other than the Bible where they go to church. The world and the society we live in right now is the result of centuries and centuries of ignoring the Word and replacing it with man-made traditions, ideas, and opinions that have been killing people, literally, physically, and financially. You know, that's, and, and these things are killer doctrines. And these killer doctrines have not been drawing the multitudes into the churches. You know, when, when unsaved people hear Christians talk about maybe God will, maybe he won't, you know, 
you know, at work or in your neighborhood or something, and, and yeah. you're listening to them and their problems or whatever, they're, they're looking for answers and solutions, you know. And if, if you say, well, maybe God will, maybe he won't, what does that say to them about the God that we serve? You know, what kind of a witness is that? I mean, they already believe God's not interested in them. They already believe he's mad at them. They already believe he's not concerned in anything that's important to them. You know, so, but the, the thing is, these killer doctrines are much more widely accepted in religious circles than what you and I are talking about in Mark 11, 23, 24. That's why the world's upside down. Hallelujah. So when you don't know what to do, do I take this job or do I stay where I am? Do I go to this school or do I go to that school? Do I go into business with these people or do I not? Uh, you know, most people would agree with this verse that we should ask God. But they ask and they ask and they ask and they ask and, uh, you know, leave it up to God to do what's best. But that's not what this verse is saying. It says God gives liberally to all without criticizing. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith. He gives a qualifier in asking. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Nothing wavering. Now I looked up the word wavering, and this is, guess what? The very same Greek word found in Mark eleven twenty three translated doubt. Where Jesus said, uh, speak to the mountain and don't doubt. The word, I looked up the word waver in the dictionary. It comes from the word weave. It comes from the word weave. To move one way and the other. Yeah. To move one way and the other. Waver means to move to and fro. To move one way and the other. To fluctuate, to be unsettled in opinion, to vacillate, to be undetermined, as to waver in faith, to totter, to reel, to be in danger of falling. So we don't just ask, we ask in faith. Nothing doubting. For he that wavereth, verse 6, is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. What happens when you're in a little boat or a little one of these little rubber dinghies and you're out on the water and the storm churns up and the wind starts churning the waves? Up and down, up and down. You're bouncing all over the place. That's wavering, that's wavering. The Phillips translation of this verse says, the man who trusts God but with inward reservations is like a wave of the sea carried forward by the wind one moment and driven back the next. Verse seven says, 
For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Now this verse in the uh, Phillips translation says, That sort of man cannot hope to receive anything from God, and the life of a man of divided loyalty will reveal instability at every turn. That little boat is anything but stable, isn't it? It's going up one minute, it's going down the next minute, it's bouncing all over the place. So what would it sound like if someone asked for wisdom and then they began to waver? You know, they say, Lord, I'm asking you for wisdom. You know, I'm asking you to give me wisdom about this situation. I haven't known what to do with about it, but I'm asking you for wisdom. And and the next day you, you see them and, and you say, well, how's the situation going? Well, um, y'all pray. <laughs> y'all pray that I'll know what to do. Because, uh, you know, I really need to know what to do in this situation. I just can't miss it. You know, this is important. Um, and you say, well, did you pray and, and ask God to give you wisdom? Did you ask in faith? Well, I prayed, but I don't have it yet. I still don't know what to do. I still don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, let's, you know, you pray. Maybe, maybe if you pray, you know, God will hear you. That's wavering. That's wavering. Did they receive wisdom when they asked God for it? Do they believe that he heard them? No, that's wavering. There's no certainty in that conversation, is it? There's no certainty in that conversation. There's a lack of conviction. There's hesitation. And there's moving back and forth. Well, yes, I asked God for wisdom, but I don't have it yet. Can you see the, the moving back and forth? Let's stop right here, right now, and let's ask in faith for wisdom, okay? Father, according to your word, let's, let, let, yeah, let's say this after me. Let, that's good. Father, according to your word, Father, according to your word, I'm asking for your wisdom. I'm asking for your wisdom. And direction. And direction. Concerning your plan. Concerning your plan. For my life. For my life. And for the situation. <laughs> that I am now facing. Where I have not known what to do. I believe I receive your wisdom. I believe I receive your wisdom. Right now. Concerning this situation. Concerning this situation. I will know what to do. I will know what to do. I will make the right decision. I will make the right decision. I'm always in the right place. I'm always in the right place. At the right time. At the right time. Amen. Amen. Now you believed you received your wisdom. And you believe when the day comes and you have to make a decision about that, you will know what to do. So don't waver about tomorrow, about, and don't start saying, I still don't know what to do. Uh-uh. Zip it up. You, you say, no, I believed I received my wisdom. When I have to make that decision, uh, I will know what to do. I'll know in my heart what to do, um, and I will make the right decision. See, that, that's faith. That's confidence in God 
that he's going to show you what to do. And just because you don't know in your head right now doesn't mean that you won't know by this afternoon or tomorrow when you make that. But, but you have confidence that God heard you, that he's given it to you. He, we've seen in the word, he, he, he liberally gives to us without criticizing. He wants to, us to know what to do. So he's not withholding it. We, we just believe that we receive it. And when, this, when we have to make this decision, we'll know what to do. And, and we have confidence it's the right decision. Now let's, um, let's go back over to Isaiah 46. I was just going to read it, but I think we'll turn there briefly. Uh, Isaiah 46. Hallelujah. Let's say this out loud. Faith declares, Faith Faith declares, declares what God's going to do. What God's, what God's going, going to do. do. Okay? Faith is true. Faith also declares what God's already done. But, but based on what God's already done, we declare what he's going to do. Now we see that here in the scripture in Isaiah 46. Let's uh, just start at verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Now this is a phrase I want you to get. Declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. God declares the end from the beginning. This is a characteristic of God. We see it uh, in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it all throughout the Bible. I talked about this in my first book, Calling Things That Are Not As Though They Were. I talked about it at some length there. Uh, Ephesians 5.1 says that we are to be followers of God as dear children. That word followers in the Greek, um, that, that word translated followers, is where we also get the English word imitate. We're, we're to be imitators of God as dear children. That's what it, that, that verse is saying. So like our Father, we are to declare the end from the beginning. If that's what God does, then that's what we're supposed to do. Now, um, let's turn to Mark 5. We'll look, uh, we're going to look at a few uh, examples of this in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And faith declaring what God will do. Mark chapter 5. Um, you know the story here about Jairus. He ran up to Jesus, fell at his feet. In verse 23, uh, Jairus came up to Jesus. He fell at his feet. And get this, Jairus 
told Jesus what Jesus was going to do. Was, did, was he being presumptuous? People today would say, whoa, you can't do that. You can't tell Jesus what to do. You can't tell the master what to do. He came up and he, he told Jesus what Jesus was going to do. He said, come and lay your hands on my daughter and she may be healed and she shall live. There is not one ounce of wavering in that statement. There is no questioning the will of God in that statement. There's no hesitation. There's no ifs, no babies, or no buts about it. There's conviction and there is certainty. Did Jesus correct him for being presumptuous? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, that statement of faith is what changed Jesus' direction. I don't know where he was going that day, but when he heard that statement of faith, he changed his whole schedule right there. He changed his plans, and he said, I'm following this man home. Jesus walked away from thousands of people to follow one man in faith. Jesus did what Jairus said. He went home with him, and he did exactly what Jairus said. Now, in the same chapter, you know, while, uh, while Jairus was having this conversation with Jesus, in the meantime, this woman with the issue of blood comes up, and uh, she, she declares what God's going to do. She, she declares what God's going to do. She's declaring the end from the beginning. She said, um, verse 28, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, she did say if, but the if had to do with her, not with God, not with Jesus. The if, the if had to do with her. If I just touch his clothes, if it's the will of God, I will be made whole. Is that what she said? No. No, she didn't even bring up the will of God. She didn't question the will of God. There's no wavering, no doubt. No uncertainty, no hesitation in that woman's words. And when she finished testifying there to, as to what happened to her, in the meantime, these messengers come from Jairus' house, and they say to Jairus, forget it, your daughter's dead, too late, don't bother him anymore, your daughter's dead. Verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the bad news, immediately he turned and said to Jairus, let's read this out loud, be not afraid, only believe. One more time. Be not afraid, only believe. Now he didn't mean just believe. He meant only believe 
what you said when you came up to me a few minutes ago and you said, come lay your hands on my daughter that she may be healed and she shall live. That's what Jesus was saying. Keep believing what you said to me when you came up here in the first place. Only believe that and don't believe what you just heard. The enemy is saying, don't bother Jesus anymore. It's too late. And Jesus immediately turned to Jairus and said, listen to me. Hey, uh-uh, uh-uh. Don't, don't listen to that. Don't listen to that. You can't afford to listen to that. Look at me. Stay with me. Don't, don't give up now. Don't quit. Stick, stick with me. <coughs> stick with me. We'll get this done. Was it necessary for Jairus to remain in faith for Jesus to go home with him and do what he did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now a lot of people would say, well, no, Jesus is the son of God. You know, he, he could have just put his arm around Jairus and said, go ahead, have a good old cry. Just get it out. Just get it all out of your system. I know your daughter, you know, is uh, so important to you. Don't worry about it. I'll go home and I'll just take care of this. No, that's not what he said. He, he said, uh-uh, don't believe what you just heard. You keep believing what those words that you said to me when you came up here. If you just come and lay your hands on my daughter, she'll be healed and she'll be made whole. So right there is where uh, his daughter's life and future really was hanging in the balance. Right there was a critical point. Uh, you know, you, you heard Greg tell the testimony about his father, you know, when the surgeon rang him at midnight and said, we're rushing your father to surgery, uh, and he has a 50-50 chance of living. And uh, Greg, I said, what did you say to him at that point? And he said, my father will not die, he will live, and he will walk out of that hospital. Now, is that declaring what God's going to do? Yes. Did yes. God do exactly what he said? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. He did exactly what he said. And when I was talking to him later, this was after his father was out of danger and he was recovering, I said, Greg, right there is where you won that battle. Right there, when you got that phone call and the bad news came, what came out of your mouth right there is what won the battle. I said, your father's life was hanging in the balance right there. And you spoke the word of God. You spoke it with conviction, <coughs> certainty. You declared what God was going to do. And God did exactly what you said. Now, Folks, this is our, we're already having these things happen right here in our midst. This is not just in the Bible anymore. We're, we're seeing this happen. Amen? <coughs> we're seeing it take place. Now, in Jairus' case, when, he, when this, the messengers brought this bad news, notice what he said when the bad news came. What did Jairus say? Which verse is that? That's... Uh, well... Uh, they said, verse 35, 35. Yeah, my, you know, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the master any further? <coughs> Jesus immediately said, you know, 
Don't get into fear. Only believe. What did Jara say? Ignoring what they said. Yeah. Oh yes, ignoring. Yeah. He did not say anything. He kept his mouth shut. Now, folks, when you can't make a faith declaration, when, when you, you're just not in that place yet, and the word's just not in your heart yet to that extent, the last thing you want to do is open your mouth and say something in unbelief. It's far more powerful just to keep your mouth shut. Jairus would, made a very wise decision right here. I mean, his emotions were all over the place. And, and rather than just give in to them and blurt out something, you know, I knew it, I knew it, I, you know, I knew she was going to die, I knew I was wasting my time coming up here, and, and, you know, these things always happen to me, and why did God let this happen? No. If he would have fought his emotions, that's what would have been coming out. But he was a very wise man, and he did not open his mouth. Verse 39. They got to the house. All these people are crying, carrying on. Jesus walks in and says, what's everybody crying and carrying on about? She's not dead. She's just asleep. What's he doing? He's declaring the end from the beginning. He's calling things that are not as though they were. Verse 40 says, and they laughed him to scorn. Now this just shows you how fickle people are. <coughs> One minute, they're crying their eyes out, and in the next breath, they're laughing their heads off. <laughs> I mean, in, in one blink of the eye, they go from crying to laughing. That, that just shows you how fickle and people are and how quickly their emotions can change. Is that not vacillating? You know? Oh, yeah. Is that not vacillating? Yeah. Yeah. When Jesus said, she's not dead, she's just asleep, they said, huh, we knew that faith preacher and those faith people were crazy. We told you they were crazy. And now they've turned up in our house. You know? So, what's holding Jairus together here? He's standing there in the room with Jesus. He sees the life has gone out of his daughter. His emotions are all over the place, but he's a wise man and he's not opening his mouth. What's holding him together is when Jesus said, don't fear, you keep on believing the words that you said when you first came to me. You just come lay your hands on my daughter, she shall be healed and she shall live. That's what was holding him together. The words of Jesus and the word and his own words. He had already told Jesus what he was going to do. And now the devil is trying to steal those words. He's saying, hey, hey, no, no, it's all over. Don't, can't you see your daughter's dead? He's trying to break his distraction, get him off the word, get him off of his confession of faith, off of... Uh, not believing what he says comes to pass, doubting, <coughs> doubting and wavering. Stop believing what you said is coming to pass. That's what all this is about. That's what all the enemy is trying to get him to do, to break his distraction. But he's hanging on to what he said, 
Uh, he's believing what he says comes to pass. He's already declared to Jesus, you come lay your hands on my daughter, she may live, and she shall be healed. He's already declared the end from the beginning. He's already declared what God's going to do, and that's what he's got to stick with. No vacillating, no wavering. Folks, this is one strong man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Praise God. Verse 41. And Jesus took the damsel by the hand and said to her, Little girl, get up if it be God's will. <laughs> Is that what he said? No. No uncertainty, no hesitation, no doubting, no wavering. Would you say there's conviction in that statement? Absolutely. No hesitation. You, folks, you see this in the ministry of Jesus all over. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was never ambiguous. He, he was always bold and confident. But folks, when you know what the will of God is, you can be bold and confident. That's why Je that, was, that was the secret to Jesus' real boldness and confidence. He knew what the will of God was. He already knew what the will of God in these situations were. He was not questioning the will of God. That's why he could be so bold and so confident. And when you know what the will of God, uh, the will of God is, it will cause you to be bold and confident. You will declare what God's going to do. You know, you you can, you can, you know. That's what faith does. It declares what God's going to do. No, he said, get up. And straightly, immediately, the damsel arose and walked. What do you think the laughing crowd outside did then? <laughs> yeah, I think they vacillated. Yeah, I don't think they were laughing anymore. They were probably crying again. <laughs> yeah, but this is not a fairy tale. This little girl was really dead, and she really came back to life. The laws of nature were reversed. Why? Because Jairus did not doubt and he did not waver. He refused to let go of his confession of faith. You come lay your hands on my daughter that she may live and she shall be healed. All things are possible to who? Yeah, to God and those who won't doubt, won't waver, won't hesitate, but will declare the end from the beginning and declare what God has done and what he will do. Everybody say this again. Faith declares, Faith declares what God's going to do. Amen. So when you ask for wisdom from God or anything else, you declare that you have it because you asked in faith and you know he heard you. <coughs> Amen. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 17. You're familiar with this story, but we're going to look at it. This is such a timeless story of faith with lots, lots of faith principles in it. You know the story about uh, David and Goliath? David is a teenager. And he's a shepherd boy. At this point, he doesn't have a very impressive CV. 
just shepherd boy. That's all of his work experience is just shepherd boy. And, and actually, when he came out here this day, in this chapter, you read on down through there, you see his oldest brother Eliab, actually, because he was so jealous of David, he actually took a swipe at him. And he said, what are you doing out here anyway? Why aren't you back at home with those few sheep? He didn't even say, what are you doing out here? Why aren't you back home tending the sheep? No, it was the few sheep. You know, you're not even a big time sheep herder. You're just uh, a little sheep herder. You know, what are you doing out here anyway? But David's experience as a shepherd was setting him up for something much, much bigger. To be king of Israel and to be a warrior. And while tending these sheep, on occasions he had a few scrapes with some wild animals. And here in this chapter he refers to the bear and the lion. And uh, it's interesting to note that when he came up against you know, the bear and the lion. I don't know if he fought them hand to hand or if he used a slingshot, but uh, he didn't run from them. That's the most important thing. When they came up to steal his sheep, he didn't run. He just knew somehow God would help him and he didn't run. So he knew God would help him to kill the bear and the lion. And every victory God gave him, his faith got stronger and his confidence in God got stronger and stronger. So here in chapter 17, he comes up on the scene out here. There's supposed to be a battle taking place, but nothing's happening. And the reason he's out there is because his father sent him with some supplies of food to take to his brothers. And he said, take this food to your brothers and find out what's happening uh, in the battle. And David got out there and found out there was no battle at all taking place. He comes on the scene and he finds the army of Israel cowered down over here in the trenches that they have built. And over here you got Goliath, nine feet, nine inches tall. All nine feet, nine inches tall. Champion of Isis. Today, he would be champion of Isis. <laughs> Do you get it? Close champion. Champion bad guy. Champion bad guy. Here, in, in the Bible, it was the Philistines were the bad guys. Today, it's Isis. Okay? Oh, Isis. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I'm with you. Sorry. Isis, yeah. Champion of Isis. Okay, so <coughs> nine foot nine, Goliath is standing out there, and he for every day for six weeks, he has walked out there. He has blasphemed God. He has yelled obscenities at the army of Israel. He has called them every name in the sun. You yellow-bellied cowards. And, 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 you know, yellow-livered sissies. You know, there's not a, a man and a bunch of you. You're all cowards. You're all sissies. You're all scared. He's been doing this. He's calling their mothers every name under the sun. 
Your mother's nothing but a blankety blank blank, and he's been doing this for 40 days, and it has not provoked one response yet out of this entire army of Israel. Not one man has responded to any of these obscenities or blasphemes of God yet. They are frozen in their tracks, and they are not moving. Now, Goliath really, I mean, Israel had warriors as well, and Saul, who was king of Israel at this time, he was a warrior. And I think he was really issuing the challenge to Saul, really. That's who he really, because, you know, he, in order to feel like a big shot, you've got to beat the big man, you know, just, just beating the little the little guy is not really any achievement, but you beat the big, the top dog, then you're really somebody. So he really wanted to fight Saul. Well, Saul is not volunteering for this job either. He's hid out back in his tent in the office with the door locked, you know. He's not volunteering for this job either. So this is going on 40 days. David comes out there. He sees what's happening, and he's totally shocked. And he goes back to Saul's office, and he knocks on the door. And he says, I, I came out here to bring my brothers some food, and uh, I saw your problem out there, <laughs> you know? I, I, he, you're, and Saul said, yeah, the problem is nine feet, nine inches tall. That's the problem. And David said, yeah, I saw the problem. He said, I'll go. I'll go fighting for you. Well, they had a little conversation. And so Saul said, okay, go. Mm -hmm. So in, in uh, verse 44, And the Philistine, Goliath, said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now, Goliath tells David what he's going to do to him, okay? I'm going to feed your, your flesh to the, the animals and the birds, okay? Then in verse 45, Then said David to the Philistine. Now David is going to say something to Goliath. What does he say? Woo! Boy, he's a big one, isn't he? <laughs> that man's as tall as my basketball goal at home. Y'all pray for me now. Y'all pray because um, I'm going to really try and do my best to beat this guy. And if it be God's will, he'll help me. Okay? Man, y'all pray. You know, maybe God will help me. Maybe he won't. If it be his will, I mean, if he sees fit to help me, then I can do something about this guy. But, you know, if God doesn't see fit, you know, maybe he wants me to teach me a lesson today. Maybe Maybe, maybe me dying for my faith today might bring glory to God and, and uh, you know, it might make somebody stronger for me to die for my faith today. 
you know. So if God doesn't come through and he doesn't help me, then uh, y'all sing Rock of Ages at the funeral, okay? Because I like that song. And um, if he doesn't come through, then you take care of my family. You see my family's taken care of. And um, you see to it that Jonathan, my best friend, gets my slingshot. Is this what David said? No. Now we sit here and we say, no way. But folks, there are millions of Christians and millions of preachers out there telling us this is the way you should pray, this is the way you should think, this is the way you should be. And they call it spiritual and they call it humble. Now, right here is where David won the battle. Right here is where David beat Goliath. Notice um, what he did not say. He did not talk about how big Goliath was. He never mentioned how big Goliath was. He never mentioned the size of the problem. The prayer of faith requires that you already know what the will of God is. Folks, if he had any questions about the will of God, he had no business being out there in the first place. Because he is in the natural, he is in a dangerous place. And this is not the time to start questioning the will of God. Can you see that? He's, he's in a dangerous position. Now, what did David say? This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll yeah. strike you down. Yeah. Yeah. This day. What does that mean? This day. Yeah. Any uncertainty about that? Any wavering? Any questioning? No? Today. This day. Where, where are we? Verse 46. This day will the Lord deliver you into my hand if it be his will. No. No. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. What's he doing? He is declaring what God is going to do. Can you see that? He's declaring what God is going to do. And millions of people will tell us that's just being presumptuous. No, it's faith. It's faith. It's declaring, based on what God has already done, it's declaring what he's going to do. And, and people will say, well, you know, Jesus prayed if it be thy will. Yes, but he only prayed that prayer once. And, and he wasn't having a, he wasn't teaching faith, and he wasn't having a healing meeting, and he wasn't having a prosperity meeting. He prayed other ways as well. So that is not the prayer of faith when Jesus prayed, if it be thy will. But people who don't know the word, they just take that and they just make it a blanket prayer and they just apply it to everything. I'm and that's told as a boy, you do not make a doctrine on one fact. Yeah. Yeah, the whole the whole word of God. Yeah, yeah. You you start taking one verse and you build a doctrine on it. You're going to get into error, because all the Bible is consistent with all the rest of the Bible, and we're going to see that here as well as as we go on. So when David said, "You come at me with a sword and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God of Hosts, whom you have defied, 
This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand. I will smite thee. I will take your head off of thee. I will give your carcasses to the host of the Philistines this day. Is there any uncertainty here about what God's going to do? No. Is there conviction and determination in his voice? Yes. yes. No questioning what God will do. No indecisiveness. Hallelujah. David did not talk about the size of the problem. He didn't talk about how big Goliath was. He didn't talk about how bad the symptoms were. He didn't talk about how much money he needed. He didn't talk about the size of the problem. It, here, he, he did not talk about uh, anything regarding Goliath's size. The spear that he, that he had, just the spearhead, weighed 15 pounds. Now, that's about the size of a shot put. I don't know if you've ever picked up a shot put, but it is heavy. You know, like they use the Olympics. I think it's about 15 pounds. That was just the, the head of the spear weighed 15 pounds. His armor weighed 126 pounds. David never mentioned any of that. He wasn't looking at the size of the problem. He was looking at the, the reward for killing this man. And that's another whole sermon. But um, right here is where, is where David won the fight and, and uh, defeated Goliath before he ever picked up that rock, before he ever took out his slingshot. This, with the words of his mouth, this is where he defeated Goliath. They might as well have got the shovels out right there and started digging his grave. This day, there's no ambiguity in that. No ifs, no maybes, no buts, no if it be God's will. David declared the beginning from the end. He told Goliath exactly what he was going to do to him because he knew the faithfulness of God because of what God had already done he boldly declared what was God was going to do and he could that's why he was so bold and so confident he already knew what the will of God was he already knew God was faithful he already knew God had helped him to defeat the bear and the lion and this man's no different than that bear and that lion Hallelujah. This story is held up for us as a timeless example of faith in God. There are many more faith principles here. Let's turn to Daniel 3. We're going to finish up here with Daniel 3. You know the story here? You know the story here in Daniel about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were, uh, they were associates of Daniel. Daniel had recommended them to the King Nebuchadnezzar uh, to, be, to hold positions here in Babylon. I think they were governors or something like that. They had some kind of government position. Uh, and they had done a good job in these positions. Uh, the king built this huge statue of himself. And he not only invited, but he demanded that everybody in the country was going to come and they were going to dedicate and celebrate this image of the king. 
and everybody was going to bow down before this king when the music played, when the orchestra started playing, everybody was going to bow down and, and worship this image of the king. And um, anybody who refused to do so was going to be put to death. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is using this occasion to put his stamp of authority on the people. You can see uh, he's using this threat of, of death as a means of controlling the, the people. And, and we see that even today. You look at these tyrannical dictators around the world, they use fear and threats uh, as a means of controlling the masses. If you don't do this, you know, or if you do do this, you know, we're, you're, you're, you're going to die, we're going to behead you, we'll ch chop your hand off and all this. So there's this, in these countries that have these tyrannical dictators, there's this constant cloud of fear over people and over the country and they, they use, these leaders use fear is a means of controlling people and you can see that that's what he's doing here. So the orchestra starts playing, everybody bows down, hundreds of thousands of people. When the music starts playing they all bow down, only three people are still standing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, when you're in a football stadium with 100,000 people and you're the only three people standing, you are noticed. <laughs> people notice that you're the only three people standing. And that's what happened here. They did not bow down. Out of hundreds of thousands of people, they were the only three still standing up. And when the king was told, hey, these three men over there, uh, you know, they're your governors in Babylon. They didn't bow down when the music started playing. Well, the king was furious. Now, he liked them because they had done a good job for him. So he didn't really want to hurt them, but um, he could not tolerate this rebellion. You know, if, if I tolerate this, then I'm going to have other people who are going to be rebelling, and this is going to get out of control. So he thought, i gotta, I got to nip this in the bud right now. So he said, uh, you three men must have, uh, you must have misunderstood my instructions. I said when the orchestra plays, everybody is supposed to bow down. And I'm emphasizing everybody. So he said, because you probably misunderstood me, we're going to do this again. I'm going to give you another opportunity. So the music starts playing again, and everybody bows down. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are still standing up in the football stadium. And uh, we come down to verse uh, 14 here. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do ye not serve my gods, nor worship the golden Im image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music. Ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well or good. But if you don't, if ye, but if you worship not 
You shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So here the context is, <coughs> worshiping or not worshiping the image and the consequences if you don't. That's what the context here is. Then he asked them a question. Who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? So, verse 17, they respond. They said, if it be so. Now the word so there, you notice in the King James Version, is in italics. And that means it was added by the translator. So we can leave that word out. And you could just read that. If it be. If it be what? Sorry, which verse are we in? Verse 17. He, he's already said, uh, you know, if you don't bow down, you're going in the fire. And who is that God who will deliver you out of my hands? And they answer him and they say, if it be. If it be that you throw us into the fire, our God is able to deliver us, and they didn't stop there. And he will deliver us out of your hand. What are they doing? They are declaring the end from the beginning. Faith declares what God is going to do. They are telling the king, if, you, if it be that you throw us into the fire, we're declaring to you what God is going to do. He is going to deliver us if you do throw us into the fire. Now, verse 18. Now this is a script that's traditionally been misinterpreted. But if not, if not what? The way this is traditionally interpreted is, they were saying, if God does not deliver us, folks, that is not what they said. They did not say, if God does not deliver us. This has traditionally been preached as an example of consecration and dedication to the Lord and we have been preached to that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to die for their faith. And this is a great example of consecration and dedication. No, it's a great example of unwavering faith. That's what it's a story about. This is an example of unwavering faith. You cannot interpret verse 18 to mean if God does not deliver us. Because verse 18 has to be in context with verse 17. Verse 17 says, if it be that you throw us into the fire. So verse 18 has to be in that context if you don't throw us into the fire. Can you see that? Can you see that? that it, this is very significant. It's very important. So, if, 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 they, if they meant, if, if, if they had have said, if you were to interpret this to say, if God doesn't deliver us in verse 18, then there would be no point in even continuing the discussion. There would be no point to say, we still won't serve your God. 
because it's obvious they wouldn't even be here. So, so there's no point, there's no reason to even make that point. If God didn't deliver us, they're not even going to be here. So it can't mean that. It has to mean, if it, but if you don't throw us into the fire, we're still not going to bow down and worship your stupid idol. That's what they were saying. This is very important. Because in verse 15, the, the king asked them a question. You know, um, I mean, he made the statement, if you don't bow down, you're going to go into the fire. And who is that God that will deliver you? Well, right here, they answer. In verse 17, they answered his question. Our God, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah. Our God is the one who's going to deliver us from your hands. Mm -hmm. Can you see this as unwavering, uh, no doubting, no hesitation, uh, statement of faith? How can they be so bold to declare what God's going to do? Because they know his will. They know their God. They know God's faithful. They know God's faithful to his word. They know what the will of God is. When you're, when you're looking... In a, in a furnace, you know, that's no time to start questioning the will of God. You know, you, you better know what the will of God is before you get there, you know. And they did. They did. This is such an outstanding example of faith. No hesitation, no doubt, no wavering about what God's going to do if they get thrown into that fire. This is such a great example of faith, an unwavering faith, that God had it recorded again in Hebrews 11 where it says, they quenched the violence of fire. They quenched the violence of fire. And this uh, unwavering example of faith has been held up for all generations. And if, and if you skew this story, by injecting in there, if God doesn't deliver us, it takes away the significance of their unwavering faith. Can you see that? It's just like pouring cold water on the whole thing. Say this out loud. Faith declares, faith declares what God's going to do. What God's going to do. Amen. They never said if God doesn't deliver us, but people have taken their little imaginary pen and written it in there. They never said if God doesn't deliver us. There's no hint or suggestion here that they ever wavered at the last minute at all. They stood up in front of these VIPs and dignitaries, thousands of, hundreds of thousands of people, and they boldly declared with conviction what God would do. Our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. Amen. Hallelujah. It's so Hallelujah. obvious when you say that. Yes. It's yes. so obvious. Yes. Yeah. Of course, if, if God didn't deliver them, they'd all be dead. Like Absolutely. Said, so how could they not do anything or do anything? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's just amazing how it's being interpreted. Yeah. 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 Praise God. Amen. I'm so glad you see that because it is so significant and important. I never thought about it, but then I've never heard it preached about the wrong, the yeah. wrong I've never heard the wrong preaching about it. Okay. No, it's it, the wrong preaching is in some place. Yeah, oh, it's it's out there. Yeah, it's been out there for centuries. Yeah, that's the traditional. Yeah, praise God. Praise God. 
Faith is fully convinced and persuaded about the will of God. The woman with the issue of blood declared what was going to happen when she touched his clothes, and it happened. Jairus declared what Jesus was going to do, and it happened. David declared what he was going to do to Goliath, and it happened. In every one of these situations, it happened exactly like they said. They did not doubt in their heart. They did not doubt in their heart. No back and forth, no ifs, no buts, no maybes. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm excited. Praise God. 